Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When you need milk for Zoe and a cold brew for yourself, King Supers Delivery will get you just what you need in as little as 30 minutes. Open the King Supers app and start your cart. Whatever the cart. Whenever. King Supers. Fresh for everyone. Delivery time's not guaranteed. Restrictions may apply. See site for details. When you're a Boost member, you get free delivery, double fuel points, and lots more. Sign up at kingsupers.com slash boost. Welcome back to the Kickabout on the Blue Room. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about football. We're going to talk a bit about Everton, but... Unfortunately, we have to go to some pretty dark places as you all join us in working through, I don't know, we're up the stages of grief, I think is what we're all kind of just plowing through day to day. Uh, joined also by Keith Tomlin this week, who is joining us in moving, hopefully from anger and bargaining to just sheer acceptance. Keith, I know that when we were in Rigby's at the weekend doing the post-match, I think we all kind of tried to get to that position very quickly in terms of just knowing what Everton have done to us in the past and, and what they were doing to us at the time. But I think that the most shocking element of my weekend, mate, is when you messaged me at half three on Sunday morning to ask me if you could still have my tickets from Man City away. And if there was a definition of clinical insanity, I think that would have summarised it very quickly. But it sounds like you've had an eventful weekend, mate. <clears throat> We're, do you know what? We're absolutely tapped, aren't we? We just, we're just gone in the head. As a, as a species, we need studying by clinical psychologists because we're not all there. Um, so yeah, we talk about the stages of grief. I think Rigby's was denial because we were still laughing about it quite a bit, um, which we've been chastised for on Twitter because we weren't quite angry enough about Everton. Yeah. Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> I got home at half past nine in the morning on Sunday after the game. So I managed to knock out all five stages of grief before I'd even got to my bed, um, <laughs> which is which is very cathartic, I will say. But at my age now, it's getting harder and harder to recover from behaviour like that. So I spent the next two days absolutely written off. Um, 
yeah, it wasn't very good, was it? I mean, like, what, what more can you say? They just, they, they just fully, fully quit. Mm. Um, they got to a position where they should have gone on and been professional and seen that game out. Um, yeah, like when did we we scored on something like was it seventy three minutes we scored the second goal? Yeah. So you're looking at you're looking at seventeen minutes plus injury, twenty minutes to see out a game mm-hmm. against a team that let's be brutally honest this season have been a bin fire. Yeah, and like our home form West for, West Ham aside has been pretty good. We should have we should have seen that game out. Yeah. Didn't even need to score another goal. Just be profession be competent on the ball and don't give them anything and we gave them everything we just gave them yeah. the world just go on like just go on, do what you want lads we're not going to stop us. you so yeah so I, it's, I don't know we'll do it we'll just... I was I was going to say Rob you, you can obviously tell from where we kind of went after the game in terms of an emotional point of view and I think so often, I think for for people who who go the game regularly, it it you kind of build up that protective layer after seeing these things happen so so many times. I know we've all had a, a few days now to to digest this and think about where we are on the just anger apathy scale, and that the harsh reality of Premier League football is that you, the games will come thick and fast, and you, you you haven't really got the time to to dwell on this for too long, but. Certainly during the game and in the immediate aftermath, Rob, watching from afar, it was the pain of how raw and surprising this result very much there? Or is there just a, an eternal ability of Everton to take themselves to the, the shocking lows that we, we managed to, to, to strive to find consistently? Because I don't know about you, mate, but nothing surprises me about this football team anymore. And as Keith referenced earlier on, we got a little bit of stick at the weekend for being semi-jovial about this in, in, the, in the pub after the game when we were doing the post-match. But I don't know. I think if, if you strip away the, the seriousness of how poor Everton can be as a football team, you, you're obliged to live a much happier life. <laughs> would, would you go along with that? I mean, as far as last weekend goes, I, I you know just kind of continuing on from the theme of of last week, I would have to say that the final two episodes of Midnight Mass really were the payoff that I was hoping for. No, um, it really was one of those types of series where you get beyond kind of the the deeper subject matter of it, and you're hoping that kind of the entertainment horror, like how is this all going to wrap up sort of thing works out and it and it did and it really it really kind of renewed my faith uh frankly on some level about about um the way in which people can kind of view death and view bad things happening to them and and so on so so the yeah. rob vera is trying everything in his power to not talk about everton and football this week and i <laughs> absolutely i'm not gonna let it happen on my watch rob you we you're, have to own this. You're breaking this. up, Mark. You're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, it, 
Okay. If you, if you read Twitter at all, Robert, and know that you do, we, we are all part of this problem. So, oh, <laughs> you, are we now? I'm not part of this problem. Uh, you have to own the choice that you have made. And do you know what? I'm not going to repeat the incredible phrase that Matt Floss used in the pub to describe your bizarre affinity for this football club. But the, the general summary of it was is that. Most of us over here have been have been born into this through bloodline, but you, my friend, you, you picked this life. I, I have in terms of not having sympathy for people, you are top of my list right now. What what uh, so um, type in, type that into the chat because I really want to see this word, and I may not be able to say it on on this podcast, but I, I would like to see it. I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, Language is not really something I'm too concerned about on this podcast because we put that little magical <laughs> E next to every episode and then uh, I don't ever have to deal with the consequences at that point, except for people who complain sometimes that the profanity is unprofessional at times. And, and I thought to myself, A, I'm not a professional at this. And B, <laughs> um, I don't really know how you talk about Everton on any sort of consistent basis without using profanity. Those who can and those who do are, are very, have a restraint level that, that I simply do not possess. Um, so um, while, while we're live on this, live recording this, I want to, I want to see if I, so is someone going to put it in there? Oh, yeah. oh, okay. You put it in. You put it in this chat. Okay, okay. I was looking <laughs> for the WhatsApp chat. So I'm reading. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm a junkie. Uh, I, I don't know the junkie. I think it was the full analogy there. You didn't. You didn't want to use uh, that. That I had. That you, some were. <laughs> let's just say some were born into this, and and uh, I chose it. So, well, let me start with. Let me start with one thing that you said that really intrigues me because I've been, I have been thinking about the some of the reaction from the Twitter park end crowd about you not you guys not caring enough or taking this all seriously enough. Um, I look, let's. I think we and I'm talking to all of you who are listening, which I guess in theory that's what a podcast does functionally, but. Um, we support, like we, the collective we, all of us who are a part of the Blue Room, all of us who are listening to podcasts like this, um, we collectively support a very poor football club. Okay, I mean, let, let's just let's just say that you can you can talk all you want. I, I get we historically our history stands up to anyone's. We have great things that that as a club we stand for quote unquote in terms of our outlook uh or, you know towards the the greater world and you know those who are uh struggling and and uh, the community and taking care of of our neighbors and a lot of really good things that i can sort of hang my hat on but um you know if you've ever supported a if you've ever supported a team in any sport that was really good, um, and I think most of us probably at one time or another have supported some team that was pretty good or that or that won a title in something, okay? Um, you never really think about the fan bases uh, that are part of that same competition who 
are always kind of down and always suffering. You know, they are the they are the fodder, if you will. Um, they are the they are the ones uh, who are there to be the sacrificial lamb to that joy that you are extracting from your great side. Um, you know, there I I have friends who support City and who support United, and uh, I I I think about the fact that it must be nice to just sort of wake up and never really consider what actual struggle uh, is like or what actual, you know, uh, uh, adversity is, is like, or just kind of persistent soul crushing mediocrity every year, year after year, over and over again and over and over again. And to still pay for the privilege to witness it. Um, we are one of those groups. We support, of mediocre football side. And I, I say mediocre pretty kindly. I mean, I, I think that you can say if you look at the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years of Everton Football Club, we've had one pretty cool high of like making a Cinderella run to a four, you know, to a, a Champions League spot back in 0405. Other than that, it's been, you know, hey, top eight finishes a bit, but then 12th and middle, ta- like we're mid table and we're just not very good. Um, our, our parents or our grandparents uh, supported good Everton sides. Hey, my 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 dad was alive and can recall every single moment of Super Bowl three when the New York Jets won the NFL title. The New York Jets won a Super Bowl, and if you know anything about the NFL, you realize how absurd it is to think about the New York Jets winning anything. Um, so I can assure you that we are just we just happen to be fans of a bad team, and 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 so. For anyone to tell us that we can't laugh about this or that we can't comfort ourselves mm. with gallows humor, I mean, fuck off, seriously. Like that—that's—that's that's all we've got at this point. I—I um, <laughs> I am. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I when when this particular side is fit, um, when we have Calvert Lewin. Uh, firing when we have Yerry Mina um, with functioning hamstrings, when we have uh, Richarlison uh, and and you know everyone, play. We're, we're actually a team that that when you add Townsend and Gray in and and Kure and Allen doing their thing, we're actually a side that I, I still stand behind this notion that you can get behind them. But I think yeah. what we saw over the past weekend was a, another reminder of just how thinly like right below that thin surface of potential uh i don't know that 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 thin surface or thin veneer of like potential competency and a group of guys that you can sort of get behind lie a bunch of squad players that absolutely suck they suck mm. as professionals they suck as as uh as teammates um they they are people who who i i saw way too many of them half acid uh for the last couple of goals that 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 watford scored there seemed to be a complete resignation and i'll just go ahead and say this because you know you're not supposed to say this about professional athletes or ever accuse them of it but there were several players and you know who they are who absolutely quit on Saturday mm-hmm. and to yeah. do so in a man and to capitulate in the manner that they did is just a reminder of how much cancer there still is that's left at this club. And the problem is, is that we get close 
but we never quite get rid of the whole tumor. You know, we, we always seem to get a new manager in who comes in as a surgeon who takes some of that tumor out and they get 90, you know, 80% of it out. But man, that 20%, boy, it just holds on and it holds on and it continues to make the body sick. And it never allows us to, to fully, you know, get past things like curses and, uh, you know, all the things that, that we you know, lament as, as Everton supporters. So um, I, 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 this whole podcast, the point of this entire podcast, the entire reason Kickabout exists is so that we could talk about other things besides Everton because uh, Everton require that. To support Everton is to require the ability to laugh at pain. And if you can't laugh at sports pain um, and you you call yourself an Everton supporter, then I, I just I, I think that you are going to meet an early, early, uh, an early death, because, uh, that is just going to eat you alive if you can't laugh at how ridiculous they are and how ridiculous it is that you sports fan, you Everton supporter actually spend money, spend part of your emotional capital, spend your time and tell your children that they should do the same generation (laughs) after generation to support this shit show at Goodison Park. And yet, as much as you guys make the point about the fact that I chose this, I guess I did choose this 16, what, 17 years ago. And if I felt like there was any credible, possible way for me to get out of it, I would, but I can't. And I, and so I won't. I'm stuck here with all of you because I still love you all, despite the fact that, um, you know, and, and frankly, we are the ones who ha- whose love sort love for one another uh, throughout this misery is the only thing that keeps us going. Because as much as we love Everton, Everton doesn't love us back, and it becomes more painfully apparent with every passing week. Keith, I think the what Rob said there about supporting a well. I won't say bad. We're an underperforming football club uh, on, the, on the brink on the brink of greatness in the next few years. We would all hope. Hey, Mark, can I ask this? Can I just point this out? Underperforming yeah. suggests that at some point recently we performed, and I just <laughs> don't know that beyond a six-game stretch here or there that we've really, perf- you know, six or seven-game stretch here or there. When is this time we've performed? <laughs> just curious. <laughs> Until you mention the actual calendar year of this achievement, I was quite happy to dine out on us qualifying for a Champions League qualifying game. But now, now that you make me realise that that was 17 long years ago, I'm, I'm not sure it stretches to relevance anymore. But I think that, do you know what? S- supporting a bad sporting institution is all of those words that we've said. It's jovial, it's comical at times. But the, the problem with doing that with Everton at the moment is that We've actively tried, both from a sporting point of view and primarily from a financial point of view. And you know what? I'll never be able to quote the figure of what we've actually spent in the last God knows how many years under under Farhad Mashiri. But that that attracts pain when when you when you go to the levels that we have done to actually improve and still manage to have a squad that we have, still manage to to churn out the the style of performances that we have and. I think, Keith, the, the one word that will eternally haunt this football club is mentality. 
And it, it's one that I think we've we've always managed to try and steer away from in general conversation, in, in conversation on these podcasts, because I think it, it's a very easy thing to do to point at a sportsman or a sports team and say, well, you're not winning anything, so your mentality is very bad, uh, when, when quite often simply from an Everton point of view, the, the calibre of footballer is, is simply not there. But I think Rob touched on an Im- important point there and he said, well, when you, when you strip away people like Calvert-Lewin and you strip away people like Richarlison, clearly this this football squad is flawed and, and the drop-off in quality is enormous. That's not what disappointed me at the weekend. I think that the thing that really got to me was all of the things we've said about the lack of professionalism. And in the same way that you take a couple of great players out of this squad and it becomes absolutely underpants, what happened at the weekend is that we went through, what was it, a, a four or five minute spell of absolute chaos. And the the ability to cope with that situation was akin to the ability of a football squad not being able to cope without its best couple of players. A couple of bad things happened. They led to goals. Yes, Josh King rubbed our faces in it, which we all knew was going to happen. And the backbone of the, of the team just totally disintegrated. I, I think that's... Under Carlo Ancelotti, I thought that that was going to be the main thing that he brought into this football club. We're not going to be able to go out and, and attract the, the world's best players and keep them here for any great deal of time. Yes, we saw people like James Rodriguez come in, and it was all lovely for a, for a spell of time, but... The idea of going out and getting someone like Carlo Ancelotti and adapting to a philosophy that someone who's been there and done it at the top level of European football was going to bring us is that we don't shit ourselves when we concede an equaliser with 10 minutes left. And God forbid if we do go 3-2 down and there is seven or eight minutes left, we don't press a self-destruct button and lead to an, an eternal chaos, which again, Everton seems to always be able to capture. But is is that the main thing that you take away from that? And I appreciate that you weren't there for the last 45 minutes of the game, but (laughs) was that your takeaway? Or are you looking back at that game and picking out football and technicalities and thinking, well, we are are a Calvert-Lewin or we are a full-fit Richarlison away from that not happening? It's a lot to unpack, isn't it? Do you know what? Mark Mark's famous ten-minute questions are are almost as famous <laughs> as my eight-minute questions. No, it's just it's it's not even that. It's just Everton. Like I've been yeah. trying to figure Everton out for a long time. Football managers have as well, mate. I don't think I'm anywhere near an answer. I just mm. there's there's nothing immediately obvious that strikes you of why this keeps happening to us. Mm. I mean, we got Carlo Ancelotti, one of the best managers in world football, and we were getting absolutely leathered at home by teams like Leeds and Burnley. Yeah. All right. So we've gone to um, Rafael Benitez, who's supposed to be one of the most like tactically astute, organised managers in world football. And we shipped four goals in 15 minutes against like bottom of the table Watford. Um, you go back to like managers before that, and like how do you, how do you where do you start with that? Where do you start to unpick Everton's issues? And it's basically my simple solution is to just knock it all on the head and focus on the charity 
because Everton in the community is a great thing that they do very well and they have tremendous success with. So let's just do that and leave the football because we're clearly not cut out for it. Um, you were saying about like you don't want to talk about the figure that we've spent under Mashiri. So we're going to avoid actual numbers. But, I mean, this might be a bit niche for Rob being um, from overseas. Do you remember Michael Carroll a few years ago won the lottery? The, it, it was a bin man from Norwich or Norfolk, somewhere in Norfolk, right? Yeah. He won the lottery, and clearly this man was the most ill-equipped man to ever win the lottery. <laughs> um, he won something like £8 million, and he bought himself like a country mansion with a beautiful stately home, promptly dug up the back garden and turned it into a dirt track. Um <laughs> He, he spent, like, I remember reading interviews and he was spending something like 10 grand on cocaine a weekend. Wow. Right? He won £8 million on the lottery and he was skint within <laughs> sort of five years. Right? That's Everton. We should never have got a billionaire owner because we are not equipped for it. Right? We were happy when we were poor. We were we were poor, but we were happy. Do you know what I mean? We we never wanted for anything. We always sort of trundled along and did all right, and we were never we were never in any danger. I don't know that I don't and know that I'd got, go as far as saying we were happy, but I point. I mean, it wasn't bad. The, sort of the latter the latter years under David Moyes, where we were constantly like we had a little European run every season and we, we'd maybe have a cup run here and there and like, we'd win some games and we'd, we'd, we'd look all right. Yeah. And we, we'd sort of finish in that sixth, seventh position. And we never really had aspirations of doing much more, but we knew nothing worse was going to happen. And then along came Farhad and we all went, <laughs> right, this is it. This is our moment. We're going we're gonna to break the big time. And then we promptly shit the bed. Like, and not, ju- not just shit the bed. We shit the bed and then rolled around in it for a while before calling for mum to come in and look at us lying there in our bed, all covered in shit. That's what Everton did when they were given money. And I just, like... <laughs> we were like not spud, we were like Spud trying to hide all the shit in our sheets yes, from, the, yes. from his girlfriend's parents and then it just flying across the room right into their breakfast and onto their faces. And... Everyone, everyone was <laughs> quoted. And I think, like, honestly, we just need to give up on aspirations of Everton ever doing anything, except that, like what Les said in the group chat the other day, the 80s was not, like, the start of something. The 80s was an anomaly. Everton yeah. got lucky and touched on, like, a few hard-working players with a bit of talent. And a manager who knew what he was doing when he like before he um, went off to Spain, and then just like the same fella didn't come back. Um, so yeah, we just need to accept. Like yeah, we've got all this. Oh yeah, we've the fourth most successful team in English history and stuff. That was a fluke rather than like any sign of us actually deserving to be there. Mm. And we should just just leave it to other people and just yeah, just go. Why, why do we feel? And and I'm always loath to ask this question because no matter how much I care, no matter how many times I come over for for matches, no matter how many friends I have there, 
I am still always going to be an outsider. Like I know that like there's, I'm as inside as an outsider can be, but I am an outsider. I, I don't, I, I wonder, and, and maybe you guys can answer this better than I could, but is the problem that we collectively have this sense of entitlement because of our history? Like we deserve to, to get quote, get back to this place, this mm. place that almost everyone who says it wasn't even alive to actually see, uh, you know, it's, these are all YouTube clips and, uh, um, you know, big coffee table books about Everton that tell me how great this club once was. And I, I know that we were, and I actually find that to be one of the, one of the most kind of beautiful things about the club is that we have all of this great history, but you know, like why I, it, like I know someone would be listening to this and say, well, what, what's the point if you don't expect to win? And maybe, maybe that's a good question. Like what's the point of following a, a following and supporting a club if there's no realistic chance to actually, you know, win or to achieve, uh, you know, the, the highest whatever. And, and again, I know we've, we've kind of reduced our expectations down to, well, maybe we can win the league cup sometime or we can win the FA cup sometime. And mm-hmm. hey, I would love that. But I don't know where they, the entitle the entitlement comes from. Is that something that's been passed down because of all the, I guess, just because of the previous success? And to Keith's point, like, how much is that entitlement just making us miserable? Like, I, I think before, to his point about the later years of Moyes, like, man, that team that had Fellaini, that Fellaini in at the end where we were just, uh, you know, where or when we were going to, uh, like you said, Europe and, we were jo- we would joke about having to play like medalist Kharkiv or whatever in the Ukraine on a Thursday night uh, on some really bad stream, uh, <laughs> you know, like and talking about the fact that you know the yo- low rent uh, UEFA Cup or Europa League was was what it was. But I, I do remember at least liking liking them. Um, mm. I, I didn't like when they shitted in big games. I didn't like it when we didn't win trophies. I didn't like. Moyes kind of just watering down our expectations to the point of misery at times. So I'm not, I don't want to paint the past as this, this uh, utopian place that it wasn't, but we all thought that, Hey, look how much we do without means. If we had means, imagine what we could do. And the problem is, is that the, the playing field that we're on has only become more advantageous to the rich, it has only become, and when I say rich, like we're rich in terms of the top 25, 30 clubs in the world, but we are, you know, by contrast, very, you know, we're very middle of the road compared to the clubs that we play in a competition with in England. And so mm-hmm. I, I just wonder if our own expectations um, don't really match any kind of reality based on, you know, any kind of reality on the ground, if you will. Right. Like, I, I don't know, like, what, what is it? We, we have an owner that's a billionaire, but yet he's not really as rich as the Chelsea owners. He's not as rich as is the city owners or now the Newcastle owners or what have you. And so um, we don't, exi- we don't play in a league that has any kind of rules about financial, uh, you know, equity or any of those things. And so I just wonder where it comes from. Why do we make ourselves so miserable? Um, Because it it just, 
I, I guess I would rather like, and, and so, but, but maybe then what's the alternative, Keith, to, to ask, you know, your question back to you. Um, I don't think we can technically just go back to those old days because if, if the choice is between being, you know, this or being Burnley or something like, I don't want to be Burnley either. I don't know what, I think <laughs> the problem is, I don't know what I want us to be. Like, I can't look at a single side in this, in this league and say, I wish we were more like them and, and feel like it's even realistic. Maybe Lester, maybe, but I don't, I just don't think it's really, it doesn't feel realistic, even if it is realistic on paper for some reason. It just doesn't feel realistic. But in, in terms of sport and pedigree, Rob, you said you, you don't want to be a Burnley. Um, I mean, neither do I, but what's the difference? What, 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 have, what have we got now that a, a club like a Burnley haven't, or, you know, any one of these run of the mill? Middle of the league, Premier League clubs, because to an- to answer your 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 bigger question in terms of where does this entitlement come from? Well, uh, me as a as a thirty three year old Everton fan, I I don't know. I I wish I knew. I I would love to feel the resentment towards this club that I'm sure some older fans who have actually seen us be relevant quite rightly have. Uh, and and to be honest, that that success in the eighties. For some people, uh, I'm not not saying for everyone who was lucky enough to witness that, but it will absolutely be a curse, and 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 I absolutely feel sorry for those people. But I, I've supported a very bad Everton side for my entire life, um, so the the sense of expectation, mm-hmm. excuse me, of expectation for a football team is just simply not there. But I think that the point that you've raised with Burnley is one that. I think a lot of Everton fans that certainly I speak to is one that we're all coming to terms with is that we're just we're just one of the others, and and that's that yeah. that's essentially just all we are now. I mean, we've we've referenced two thousand and four, we've referenced the eighties. The last time we've done anything of real note, apart from a one-off nineteen ninety-five FA Cup win, was thirty-five years ago. Thirty-five yeah. years. I mean, the the this Premier League changes in massive cyclical fashion every what seven or eight years you'll get a liverpool crop up you'll get a man city you'll get a dominant man united in i guarantee you in seven or eight years time when we are still endlessly talking about the perils of this football club there'll be another superpower possibly a newcastle united and we'll still be there and we'll still be irrelevant and and the, the quick and Seamus Coleman will still be the starting right back in seven or eight years too. Absolutely, by the way. absolutely, we'll we'll still be having the the essential Tom Davis debate, which I promise you we will get to. But and and do you know what? This this <laughs> might sound like an enormous overreaction. We've we've lost two games on the bounce. One of them was in apocalyptically bad fashion. I get it. That the, the world is not falling apart, and I still hope that we'll have a good season. But it it's. The reason we've gone to this place is that it's games like Watford on Saturday that make you realise that our identity and our personality as a football club will never leave us. And we, we will consistently try and shake that off. And Keith, to your question about why we are like this, I have no idea. Because I think most fans thought that when the kind of David Moyes era broke away, and I'm not necessarily just talking about him, but I'm bringing Bill Kenwright into that, which to an extent, obviously, his input has decreased. It's the classic, why do we never win at Anfield question? And we all assume that when Tony Abbott and Leon Osman and all of that clan of footballers, Phil Jagielka, to an extent, Leighton Baines, when we all moved on and broke away from the shackles of Everton, meaning so much to everyone, 
that's when we'd start to rely on the quality of our football. That's when we'd start to break away from the curse and the voodoo that we seem to carry, not only in big games like the Derby, but just generally from from season to season. And and quite honestly, a, a lot of the a lot of the apathy that I think most of us hold at the moment is because we are all simply just shrugging our shoulders on a on a weekly basis now. It, it's great when it goes well. But when we get round to, to this point again, where we're getting our asses handed to us by a really, really bad football team in Watford, not none of us really have the care or the knowledge to know why it's happening anymore. And I know it's a, it's a dangerous place to go to on a podcast that attracts people who want to talk about Everton. But <laughs> I think I think collectively this week that this is all how we feel, and um, it, it's frustrating because. We, we want to engage. We, we want to be successful. And I get that football fans of every single one of the Premier League teams has exactly the same feelings. But I, I think we're at that point now where we, we can no longer talk about a Burnley or a Leicester City or a West Ham United. We, we have nothing on them anymore. Nothing. Right. We, 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 won, we won lots of trophies in the past. And do you know what? You've mentioned one of them, Keith, charity, heritage, history, everything that is away from that horrible green hundred yards of football turf that about this football club is absolutely wonderful. But when it comes down to the brass tacks of playing football, I just I, I don't really feel like we've got any form of pedigree now to say that we're better than the vast majority of the teams in the league. Yeah, I, th- I think you're spot on, to be honest. Um I mean, how long can you how long can you talk about a football club's history for before it becomes irrelevant? I mean, we look, we we talk about teams like Newcastle. Say, oh, look at Newcastle! Newcastle haven't won anything in fifty years or whatever or sixty. We haven't won anything in thirty five, but bar that FA Cup, and that's now what twenty six years ago. Yeah, twenty six. I mean, is like in the mid nineties. How how we managed to do that? I mean that that that's what Everton's next trophy win looks like, isn't it? We're, we're in, oh yeah! In the midst of being shite, we somehow yeah. have to win three or four games in a row. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's just yeah, like Ever- Everton are they're a conundrum, aren't they? They're a conundrum wrapped up in an enigma. <laughs> um, you're only a conundrum if you're still trying to figure it out. And maybe that's the point is that, you know, just <laughs> stop worrying. I just can, I, I joked about it before. Can we just be Fulham fans who just go to the game? Cause that's, it's just something to do. And Hey, you know, if they win, that's awesome. But what, <laughs> you know, what are you going to like? Ah, I, <laughs> and by the way, can I just point this out too, that, I know that there's definitely, and Mark, you said it before, like there's some of the people who are listening to this thinking, my God, what a reaction to one game. And I get that a loss is the same in the standings in the table. If you lose one nil versus five, two, but there was something so offensive about that loss that mm. that I haven't felt that kind of I haven't and you and it wasn't just me you guys picked up on it too and like it, it's weird because on the one hand I don't like anyone criticizing anyone else's emotional reaction to it like I I didn't listen to the post match just because I just 
I wanted to get as far away from Everton last weekend as I could. Yeah. Um, I've heard that it turned into, um, you know, therapy via humor. And I think that's great. And I don't have any problem with anyone kind of processing the shit, the shit that is, you know, uh, that is a bad Everton result in, in the way that, that, that best suits them. But, but, but let's also be honest too. Like the reason people are having this reaction um, is because I'm sorry, not every loss is the same. Uh, it might technically be, <coughs> excuse me, but yeah, to lose to that team and to do it, do so in a way that basically took 20 plus years of Everton tropes, Everton that tropes and memes and combined them into one shocking uh, 20 minute period of football at Goodison in front of a full house. I just yeah. felt I felt like that was it, it it felt offensive. It the way we gave up the goals felt offensive, especially once we had gone behind. And I, I I've said it before, but but the, some of those pl- some of those players just absolutely quitting. Um that's what I can't can't handle. Okay, I, I've I've abandoned my expectations about winning things and about being elite anymore. And I will be told that I am uh, too cynical. And why am why why have a podcast about Everton if I don't think that we can compete for things? Well, we can't compete for things because we're not good enough to. We have a very poorly run football operation at our club, and therefore we are not in a position to compete for things. But what I what I can't let go of, and I hope this doesn't make me Everton da, but I can't let go of players quitting on the quitting on the the team, quitting on the manager. And frankly, there was something different about the performances. And believe me, I get that this is optics and this is context. When we were when we were crapping the bed at home uh, last season in front of zero fans that sucked, Mm. but it, it was, it was sort of like a suck in isolation or in a vacuum, if you will. But to do that in front of those fans, uh, you know, our fans say what you want and believe me, there, there are all, you know, I'm certainly not saying that every one of our fans is pure as the driven snow, but my God, there is a level of commitment and caring and love and devotion that these poor people ha- have and endure. And yet um, to have that happen in front of them made it worse. Like if this had happened away at Watford, I, I wonder, I mean, the reaction would still be really bad. But I think there's something about it being a Goodison in front of a full house that just made it worse. And I think that's why we're having this reaction to it. Mm-hmm. I think that, yes, we are making one match into a referendum on all of, you know, Everton fandom and what the point of this is and, and all of these things. I, <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that that's the thing that just sticks with me. It was the manner with which we lost, the context of it all. And I said after the match, and I do want your thoughts on this. I, I said after the match that if Benitez took had all of this goodwill going for him headed into you know headed into that game, even with the, the couple of losses we'd had this season, none of them felt humiliating. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they all sort of felt like, well, you know, sometimes shit happens. It's not your day. But we've been playing such a nice brand of competent football. The ugliness of that one loss seems to almost have undone all of the goodwill that he had. Now, I am not suggesting that we sack him because the last thing that we need is is more instability. I think Everton are just going to have to endure. They're just going to – the manager – the manager did not set us up well to win. The manager made bad substitutions, but the manager for me right now is about what fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth in line in terms of the problems that we've got at the club right now. To me, it is all about squad construction and it's all about a complete lack of overall character. Not every player is like this, by the way, there are some players with tremendous character. Unfortunately, many of them were missing last Saturday but we have a lot of guys who are there to collect a paycheck and they showed you they showed you who they were on Saturday and if you're honest with yourselves a lot of those same guys and I don't even need to name names cuz we've named them before on this pod and I think that you could watch watch go back and watch the third fourth fifth goal and you watch which you watch which players were doing what there are players that are absolutely at this club collecting a paycheck and doing little else and they not only showed us who they were on Saturday, they if you're really honest with yourself, they've been showing us who they are for a long time. And that is not easy when it comes to contracts. It's not easy to just kind of get rid of a player as much as we talk about just bend them all. We can't do that. I understand that. But um, I'm sorry. The common denominator here has been you know, a collection of players who consistently do, you know, we, we can replace the manager over and over again, but we keep getting back to players quitting on the manager and quitting on, you know, uh, you know, quitting on Everton. But in this particular case, I, I feel like they were quitting on the fans right in front of their eyes. And to me, that was the most egregious part of what we saw Saturday, hence the reaction that you're seeing today. Yeah, you know, Rob, I think a lot of what you've said there takes me back to the summer when we were talking about how controversial it would be if Rafael Benitez come in, all of the, the plethora of names that we kind of threw about as being prospective Everton managers. And for all of the things that you've just said there, that that's exactly why we were saying that whoever Everton appoints as manager doesn't really matter. Um, because yet, yes, there'll be tactical nuances and there'll be certain players who they go after, but I think the the rotten core that you've described there in terms of not only levels of character and, and just sheer inability, but I think the, the ability to totally throw it in at key moments is something that will will follow this group of players around regardless of, of who the manager is. And I think, Keith, at, at the weekend, the, the difference, you know what, Everton lose games. Everton lose games at Goodison and they lose games that they really shouldn't do. But now and again, now and again, it goes to a really intangibly dark place and, you kind of get this really moody mist that sets over Goodison Park to the point where it's like a, a boiling war zone inside those four walls of Goodison Park. And I, I think back to the 4-0 Bolton defeat at home, the, the sixes and sevens at Arsenal have put past us. And certainly that 5-2 against Watford on Saturday was right up there in terms of being just one of those really dangerous parts of Liverpool for about 15 minutes because... It, it was it was pretty nasty in terms of the feelings that were inside there. But I'm intrigued to see what your thoughts were on the reaction to Rafael Benitez at the time because we've obviously mentioned him and there'll be so much scrutiny about yeah the, the tactical setup at the weekend and in particular a couple of the, the substitutions that we'll come on to. But 
he's not the first event manager to make poor decisions and to make poor substitutions and for those substitutions to be booed roundly by the crowd and for it to, to go as wrong as it did. But were you, were you surprised at the level of vitriol, for want of a better word, that was directed towards him, primarily at the, at the Richarlison for Anthony Gordon substitution? Or is that just is that the going rate of abuse for, for a performance, regardless of, of the manager and the history that he might bring in? I don't... I, I mean, like I said, like you said there, managers have been booed for substitutions in the past. Um, pretty much every Everton manager I've ever watched has been booed for a substitution in some form or another. Um, I don't think there was anything particularly like directed at Benitez that we haven't seen before in other managers. Um, if we leave out my, my binary scale that we're not allowed to talk about, otherwise Matt gets upset. Um, which which I must point out is very tongue-in-cheek. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, he spent, like there was a lot of opposition to him coming in. Yeah. And there was a lot of sort of worry about if he got off to a poor start, it would go downhill quickly. And then he came in and he sort of made Everton quite stable and he, he built up a, a bit of goodwill. Hmm. with the fans and all that seems to have just gone in one week. I mean, West yeah. Ham, West Ham, like nobody particularly got on his case for the West Ham game. We were just beaten by a better team on the day. We gave them a hmm. game. It wasn't, it wasn't a route. We played, we played all right. Well, we didn't play all right. They didn't play great, but we weren't battered or anything. We didn't look like in, in a different league or whatnot, but it seems to, like all of the goodwill he's built up seems to have gone off the back of Saturday and what's happened. Yeah. Um, I don't think the substitutions were great. Tactically, I think we were probably set up how we had to be given um, key players missing. Um, and for large parts, it did actually work. We, we looked direct. We went at them. We were unlucky with the, like the equaliser came from, a mistake, giving away a goal, giving away a free kick in a, a dangerous position. Um, but by and large, we looked like the better side. We were playing decent football. We were attacking. We were creating chances and stuff. And then he made the subs, and you could you could argue, yeah, okay, great. He brings Richarlison on, and Richarlison scores within minutes, and it looks great. But Richarlison's goal came from a cross from a centre half. Yeah. Right, that's that's an anomaly. That's not going to happen every five minutes to create those chances. Your crosses are going to come in from your fast, direct attacking wingers, of which we had two on the park. We had Gray and we had Gordon, and he brought Gordon off. Don't know why he brought Gordon off because he was having a very good game, um, one of his better games for Everton. He looked good on the ball. He looked exciting on the ball. Well, um, well, Keith, he hasn't got he hasn't got ninety minutes in his legs apparently, um, which quite for <laughs> for an attacking midfield player of of his age, I think we've got some serious questions to ask. If, yeah, what well, well, what are they doing in training? Is he just sitting there eating chips or something? <laughs> and talk, let, talking about ninety minutes in the legs, let's talk about the five hundred pound elephant up front. Oh um, well, how did he? How did he stay on the pitch for 90 he, minutes? 
I think the point I made after the game, Keith, is that first of all that what you're talking about in terms of the the manner of Everton's equal, excuse me, the the goal that put us two one ahead, is that there was no real plan. I, I couldn't really see how Everton's yeah. goal was going to come about. Yet we had some talented players on the pitch, but I think it was glaringly obvious throughout the whole game that without that central pivot and without that target man and, and that that kind of pivotal point to our play up top that someone like a Dominic Carvert-Lewin will eternally give you, then it, it all fell apart very quickly. And it, for my money, if we were to get ourselves ahead like we did, I think we were relying on that sort of moment where we'd be at a set piece or, or an individual piece of skill from from someone like a, a Richarlison to get us out of a, a, a pretty dire game. But Solomon Rondon... Um, do you know what? People, people can make kind of really bad arguments for why he stayed on the pitch at the weekend. And I mean, you can turn yourself blue in the face about, you know, he was a, he was another presence up top and all the defenders are focusing on Rondon and his imperial threat. And that's why Richarlison was allowed the space in the box. And we can, we can go down a really weird road of Davy Klassen's ghost run against Stoke City. <laughs> what a run that was, though. <laughs> Quite frankly, his performance at the weekend had gone way beyond the threshold of being able to stay on that football pitch. And it, it was at the point whereby I don't think Benitez could have argued for a tactical reason to make any other substitution other than taking him off. Because I, I know that we speak so often about it's like playing with 10 men, it's like playing with nine men, etc. But it, it was genuinely like we were hindering ourselves by having that man on the football pitch. And you know, the, the most frustrating element for me, Rob, is that every time we've played against Solomon Rondon at Goodison Park, he's absolutely torn us apart. And when the ball gets yeah. played into him, he looks solid, he looks like he's capable of holding the ball up, he looks like he's capable of causing problems to our back line, which, having seen them on Saturday, is no great feat. But there's only so long, surely, that we can consistently watch this fella and say, well, he's been out of the top level for a while, he's gaining fitness. <laughs> for, for my money, when, when yeah. we had an international break, what, two weeks ago, for a fortnight, any good-standing professional footballer is capable of getting himself to the top level in that time because that is quite simply what we pay you hundreds of thousands of pounds to do. But I I honestly think not only on Saturday but going forward, his inclusion for me now is is beyond repairable in terms of how we make this work with him in the squad. And I I get that there's limitations to to this team and I get that there's, there's... massive contributing factors in terms of simply not having the numbers to deal with the the level of problems that we've got at the moment. But surely, Rob, surely Rafael Benitez is seeing what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. Um I I I struggle with questions about manage you're saying something that sounds very obvious, but how many times have we said, surely the manager is seeing what everyone else is seeing, what is plain to the eye. And there is something about becoming Everton manager that seems to oftentimes make them blind to uh, (laughs) some, some very basic truths that are right in front of their eyes. Now, I will say kind of Bob, yeah, well, but, you know, here's the thing about Solomon Rondon. Like, I think there's a few elements to this. One, 
Do I think that he is not giving uh, a total effort? That no, I don't tend to think that's the issue. By by all accounts, Solomon Rondon has been for his entire career a hard worker, um, a high character guy, good in the dressing room. You know, like I I never really had a major issue with that aspect of signing him. What he doesn't possess anymore is footballing ability. And that is because he has so many miles uh, on, on that, on that odometer. You know what I mean? Like he is, he's, he is, there, there are some players who at a certain point, especially those who have plied their trade by being incredibly physical, strong guys who, who take a lot of, of, of contact physically as part as a, as a core part of their game. Um, I just think that he may have run out uh, of, of of that juice. And Rafa Benitez kind of has to own this decision. And he is owning this decision. And maybe that's why he kept playing him. But he owns this decision because it was clearly his choice to sign him. And you can say, well, it was a free. And, you know, sometimes you're just kind of taking a punt there. And I understand that. But... Solomon Rondon is ultimately the result not only of the choice to sign Solomon Rondon, but uh, is also tied to a uh, an entire series of bad choices that Everton made when it came to constructing a squad, when it came to uh, trying to fortify that position. Um, I don't know what Keith is doing in the background, by the way, Mark. I think he is uh, <laughs> putting together furniture there or something like that. Oh, there he is. Okay, sorry, Keith. You're I'm you're just, very, just very loud in the background. I'll just get myself ready for. Uh, I'm going to send you a help article. I'm going to send you a help article on how to press mute on your mic uh, <laughs> next time, so that way you know. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think Solomon Rondon is the result of a series of ba- bad decisions related to the overall poor construction of this squad, and and you know whether that is the decisions made around Moise Keane, whether that was frankly, as we saw, the decisions around. Players like Josh King, um, you know, I mean, we we made a lot of bad choices. Uh, we also chose, by the way, to uh, play ball with Richarlison this summer and say to him, yeah, go ahead and play, play in the Olympics. And again, I don't know that, you know, I know that he was the subject of a horror tackle uh, against Burnley, uh, but I also think that that it probably didn't help anything that he's probably more susceptible to injury, just like we see with these players who get absolutely abused by their own countries. And, and we, you know, we kind of allow it to happen. And so there's there's a lot of things that go into that, but you're right. Um, I don't know why I, I don't know why Gordon came off instead of Rondon. Um, I know it was the right decision to put Richarlison on, but the bottom line is this taking off Anthony Gordon. And and I like Anthony Gordon. We talked on here about the idea of giving, you know, young players like him a real role to let them develop. So we have answers about them, you know, but that single decision, I'm sorry, does not account for, um, you know, why we, we shipped those goals. That is down to our midfield. That is down to our, 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 our back line, which was absolutely comically atrocious last week. And so um, I, I, I think it is fair to say that, that Rafa Benitez did not do nearly enough in his decisions about whether it be the starting 11 or the substitutions to help things. Um, 
but I don't, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't think that that's the same as saying that he is primarily at fault for the way we played uh, at the end of the game uh, on Saturday. Now, I also do subscribe to the notion, by the way, that uh, this is a bottom line business and that the quote buck stops here with the manager. So the manager is ultimately responsible on some level for performances. So Benitez gets the same black mark for this game that, that a lot of these players do. Um, but he would probably, and rightly say like, what, what do you, what would you have me do in some of these scenarios? I get that. Like right now he has to thread, he has to really thread a needle through such a narrow, uh, you know, he has, to, he has to narrowly thread all these needles because he doesn't have any squad flexibility at all. And so all it takes is one bad decision to just make, make this whole house of cards fall down. Maybe, but the bottom line is, is that uh, this is still down to those who've made decisions about players. He is one of them, yes. But to me, Rondon is, yes, a problem because he just can't play anymore. But the real problem is that Dominic Calvert-Lewin got injured and has been completely unavailable for most of the season. And for whatever reason, and I don't know why this is beginning to feel like a real trend at Everton, I think that there that injuries are a result of both bad fortune and things that are just completely uncontrollable. Mm. But we do seem to have a real trend over the last several years of lots of soft tissue injuries, lots of players who, while they're rehabbing, somehow suffer a colossal setback. Like what happened to Jean-Philippe Gabamin to me is partly luck. And I think it's partly mismanagement. I think that Calvert-Lewin, I, a penny for his thoughts. I would love to know what he thinks about why he is injured again, um, how he could have gotten injured again so badly that we're talking about him being out through all of December. Like I, th- there's just, there's failure has a lot of authors, Mark. <laughs> you know, I mean, and and Everton have lots of authors uh, working on that failure right now. And so to, to pinpoint any one managerial decision, I think um, under I, I think it, it underestimates the sheer scale of, of the failure that we're looking at in terms of the club. Now, if we can pivot for a second, Mark, you know, the opportunity comes uh, uh, on Monday to kind of right the ship. Um, I don't know if Everton can do that. I don't think Wolves are or any kind of world beaters, but they're better than Watford and Watford are the worst team in the league. And we saw what just happened. So we probably have to dispense with this notion that, that any side is a very favorable matchup for us right now. And frankly, we just have to have some kind of response and some kind of result. It's going to be hard. And I don't, I don't, you can't really ask any of us to have a lot of faith in us getting a result. Mm. But the season is going to continue regardless of how we felt about last Saturday. And so we must go into it again. We must go into the breach once more. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. I just don't think that there are a lot of solutions coming until the window opens in January. And even then, as I've said several times, I am still very skeptical about a Uh, our willingness to go into the market in January and B, our Mm -hmm. ability, if we decide to go into the market, to actually make good deals and to acquire good players that will actually help solve some of these issues. So, you know, I guess we'll we'll see where it goes from there. Well, Rob, you mentioned the build-up to Monday's game at Molyneux, um, hand-in-hand with the fact that Everton need to find solutions. And one man who's been spoken about today, as we record, is Tyler Onyango in terms of being involved in Everton's first team setup, and obviously 
rather crucially in the area of the pitch that I think if we all honestly look at it at the weekend is the area of the pitch that this game really got away from us. Um, we talk about managers making decisions, uh, and you know what? It will always come down to substitutions because they're the they're the on-trend pivotal things that you can talk about in a in a post-match podcast or in in the days that follow it. But I think the one thing we knew about losing someone like Abdullah Decore was that the setup of this team had to change purely because we have no one of the the stature and the quality that he offers us. And I think that the most disappointing element of the weekend for me was the the sheer naivety to think that, A, someone like Tom Davis could come in and and do an equivalent role. Um, Also, hand in hand with that, the fact that I think we honestly, obviously with the the benefit of hindsight now, after Saturday, we we know that Alan is simply not the footballer that we need him to be if Abdullah Decore is there. And you do you know what you can talk long and hard about him personally and about how that should not be the case. But all that said, we go into this game on Monday at Molyneux. I, I would like to think that we've seen enough of that too in midfield to know that that is quite simply not resilient enough to work at this level. Are, are you expecting a different setup in terms of playing potentially a flatter three that we we thought that we'd see? Is that why someone like Onyango is getting mentioned? And just mm. to finish that entire question off, why on earth did we not see Jean-Philippe Gabamin at the weekend? Because if that is not the time to bring on your £20 million holding midfielder, regardless <laughs> of what has gone before him in the two years previous, surely there is a, a, there is a point in that game where you think that he is the absolute answer. And if he's not, Rob, is he fit to be sitting on that substitute bench? Well, I mean, I, he might be on the bench because we just don't have the we, – we have to make up the numbers. I mean, there's a reason we've got two keepers on the bench every week yeah. too. Um, I, 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 I would – I'd like to see Gabamin, but I – uh, if I can go, if I, you know, how many times do we hear this? Well, you know, we, we're not in the, we're not in training every week. We don't see what the manager <laughs> sees or whatever. I swear to God, that old, that old uh, Easter egg is never going to get old. Um, yeah. I, I don't know what to make of it. I think that on the one hand, I'm encouraged by the fact that, um, or at least by the idea that he might do something very outside of the box, which is, take an 18 year old with barely any premier league experience or, or first team experience whatsoever and say, all right, we've got a, you know, I, this <laughs> ideally in a functioning, healthy club, you wouldn't have an 18 year old like him jumping right into the fire like this. But uh, I don't want to be critical of that because as I say all the time, I think that, that the biggest handicap or self-imposed handicap that so many managers uh, have in the Premier League and in, and in, and in modern football um, is their own uh, enslavement to preconceived uh, conventional, you know, notions of, of conventional wisdom of, well, you don't, you know, you just got to play these guys. It doesn't matter how many times it fails. They're the, they're the veteran players. You got to play them. Like, I would like to think that he saw what we all saw on Saturday and said, you know, I'm not going to keep doing this for four games to see if it gets better because it's not. Um, I think we have enough. And we talked about this when we talked about Anthony Gordon, uh, Mark, like we have enough tape on Tom Davis by now to know what he is. Um, And, and so, uh, and Hey, he scored a goal. So, you know, that was nice, but I, I I would say that we kind of know what he is. And so I am all for, 
unconventional solutions to to problems that are of a you know or that are somewhat unconventional right now. And and so uh, Tyler Onyango is. I think the, the the at least the idea, at least what I've read, and I won't pretend I've seen a ton of him to know this, but that he is of a more similar ilk in terms of the playing style and maybe the the the, the bigger frame, if you will, of a decore. Maybe that's the thinking is that he's someone who can provide a little bit more, uh, you know, stability on the ball. He's going to be someone who's got a little more pace. Maybe that's the idea. I don't really know. But I, I would say that that if you're going to go with a flat three in the midfield, um, I think that part of what th- this manager up is up against is a lot of imperfect solutions. And so, therefore, you have to sort of be willing to take a risk here and there. Um, you know, I would like to see Gabam in play, but if he's not playing for some reason, and, and it's weird because during the preseason, we saw him look pretty decent. I, I, I don't know if, if it's just they are just trying to, you know, they just don't feel comfortable playing him heavy minutes right now. And, and you generally aren't putting another holding midfielder into a game as a sub, mm-hmm. especially when you're down or you're, you know, level in the game. So maybe there just hasn't been an opportunity. But, you know, Tom Davis probably got the nod ahead of, of, of Gabamin because, you know, Davis was seen as someone who, while underwhelming and not someone the manager really rates clearly, is someone that that he felt like was fit and could just step in and just do a, do a job or whatever. Well, you know, it didn't really work out. If you go with three, the question becomes, who who are your three? You know, with no decore, you have Allen there. Okay. Um, and then what else? I mean, uh, Gomez is still uh, recovering. He seems to be indicating on his social media that he's getting closer. Uh, but I, I don't, I mean, we've seen that. We've seen that movie before, right, Mark? Of having a, you know, now Gomez does play better. I will say Gomez plays significantly better in a three-man midfield than he ever does in a two. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that Gomez, who is more skilled when he gets forward, you could play him, Allen. And to me, I still look at Gabamin as being a better idea to play there than uh, Davis. Um, you could put on Yengo in there, I guess. I just feel like I feel like what we're more likely to see is Onyengo on the bench and someone that yeah. he could go to. But I'd be kind of shocked if he's starting an 18-year-old and who just himself came off a pretty significant injury in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it's sort of like if you're afraid of Gabamin's fitness, then wouldn't you be kind of afraid of someone who's just even more recently come off of a long-term mm-hmm. injury, who's also 18 years old, who you're not paying an incredible amount of money? Like I just, I'd rather them just take the shrink wrap off Gabamin and let me see that he's awful, uh, so that I, so that we can at least say, well, I mean, at least we have the answer. Gabamin's just not the same as he used to be and whatever, but I, I'm, I'm really struggling with, with what to do about that midfield. And, and therefore I can imagine. So is the manager. How, how dare you overlook Gabamin's seven out of 10, 45 minutes away at Huddersfield in the Carabao Cup. <laughs> he was good. I thought he was perfectly serviceable there. Like <laughs> you're right. Like what's the, what, what's the, what's the fear but but maybe the bigger question mark is, what's the upside of playing Tom Davis there again? Whereas with well, Gabamin, yeah. Gabamin, at least on paper, in theory, has a higher upside, right? Yeah. And in the same breath, you've got 
what's the downside? And uh, do you know what? No one's sitting here saying let let aimlessly throw Tyler on Yango into the starting lineup on Monday like a lamb to the slaughter, and he'll just join the ever growing bonfire of Everton midfielders that absolutely tank it at the top level. We're, we're not saying that, but there surely comes a point where you think, well, if we're not going to be good and we're not going to be successful, why don't we learn something while we're doing it? Yes. So we, we, we can look at Tyler Onyango. We can look at someone like Lewis Dobbin. I, I will echo everything you've said in terms of, I, I, seen Lewis Dobbin kick an actual football in person about seven times. I'm not going to sit here and say that he is the answer to everything, but how are we ever going to know these things? I can't watch Tom Davis play another 100 games for Everton while we're all right. still trying to figure right. out what, what is going on here. And you know, I, I am not singling this lad out like I have admittedly done in the past because I don't feel like he's at the calibre of, of, of midfielder and the calibre of footballer that we need to take this thing anywhere near where we all want to go. But surely, surely we've all learned enough now. Uh, again, we, this this on Yango thing, it, it feels a little bit Benny Beningamy from a few years ago where we, <laughs> we were collectively terrible. We were going away to Chelsea, who, by the way, we've got to play alongside Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester, Man City, all before Christmas. If yeah. this is not the time to get a little bit more solid in the midfield and also find out something about a player who, yes, admittedly has just come back from a long-term injury, but it's someone who we, we hope is going to be able to to be a, a central pillar in this football team for, for years going forward. And I think it's... Tom Davis is the unfortunate ideal summary to use in this kind of hamster wheel that is Everton in terms of we never seem to learn the lessons of individual players. We never seem to learn the lessons of being 2-1 up against a terrible football team with 13 minutes left. It, it, we're on this constant cycle of disappointment. And I think he is the unfortunate personification of that. And Joe, we've spoken so many times this season about watching highlights back and, you know, watching fabulous Abdullah Decore goals back. And unfortunately, the only clip I've seen back of the weekend, Rob, is that shit show leading up to, oh, don't quote me on which one it was, one of Watford's goals where both, goal, both of our, absolutely, both, both of our central destructive midfielders bottle out of tackles before our captain kind of dances around Watford's left winger, who, proceeds to put the ball in the back of our net. I mean, if, if Rafael Benitez is not watching that segment of play thinking that something massively drastic has to happen in the next four days, then I think we might as well just call it a day right now. Yeah, well, I I don't... I, I feel for anyone having to make some of these decisions, but, you know, I think about it this way too. Like, if... You know, if you're going to be, if you're going to finish like what we are probably going to finish this season, which is mid table and granted, I, I picked 12th and maybe we don't finish that low, but it wouldn't shock me really, but I would rather finish 12th and learn something about players that we've got and or develop players that we've got like the struggles that 
someone like like if you wanted my best argument for throwing on Yango into the fire beyond what I always say, which is that young players are treated way too preciously in this sport as if playing them is going to hurt them somehow. Like just let them play and let them struggle. That struggle is sort of like the 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 tougher skin you build after a wound heals, you know? And and I think that I am I'm of the opinion that if you wanted to make a strong argument about Onyango, it's that I would rather see Onyango get those minutes that Tom Davis or that a Fabian Delph would get, you know, or or some some spare like that. I'd rather see him get those minutes, even if it meant a short term setback, because really the difference between finishing 10th and 12th or ninth and 11th, like who gives a shit? It doesn't really matter. It's not really consequential in any significant way. So for me, I think it would be better for us to learn something and or be developing something um, as opposed to just like playing guys just because they, you know, that that there's this conventional wisdom about, well, you got to play the guys who've been there before. Well, the problem is we've been there before with these guys and we've seen them play and we know what we're going to get. I'm, uh, I am all about uh, the unknown and and seeing what's in the mystery box and seeing what's behind door number three. You know what I mean? Like I, I would rather see that kind of approach and the fact that Tyler Onyango uh, has been elevated into this discussion by being brought into first team training by Rafa Benitez, you can view it as uh, a, a desperate move, but you can also view it as a manager who, um, to the point we were talking about before, is acknowledging that he has seen in one game enough to know what doesn't work and is going to at least consider something different. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll, the proof will be in, in what what the, the actual squad looks like and the starting 11 looks like on Monday, but I'm at least encouraged by the fact that there, that there doesn't seem to be this sort of thing like we got with Carlo, which was that, you know, it doesn't matter how many times we failed the same group. He was going to pretty much put the same general group out there every time. And so um, – I'd like to. I'd like to think that maybe we'll see something there. And again, it doesn't have to be on Yango. But I, look, I, I, I love the. I love the guy. I think I, in terms of just his, I, I think he's a cool guy. I think. I think his Instagram's great, and I think that it's great that he's from Liverpool or whatever. But I don't know many times, so many years, we have to have the same conversation anymore about yeah. Tom Davis is what he is. He's a squad. He's not a bad player. He's just not a good player, and he's just not someone that I need to see more of, uh, or that really adds uh, to any real solution set. I think you just at a certain point have to say, all right, I, I know what we've got in Tom Davis. He can come do a job if we need to, but this is an opportunity right now while Decoria is out to look for, you know, better high, um, high upside solutions. And, and I guess I'd like to see that. And, and to kind of wrap that up into a bow about our larger conversation, Mark, I think that when you are a club mired in mediocrity, which we have been for a long time, you have to be willing, um, especially, and we talked about Benitez's, uh, uh, I think we cra- praised him for this early on in the season. You know, you take a guy like that who said, who doesn't focus on what he doesn't have. He just says, all right, here's what I've got. And I've got to make, 
make uh you know (laughs) make make a chicken salad sandwich out of chicken shit here you know like it's the old like you know he's got to find a way to make something good out of it and he did he's done that for the most part still you know the watford result aside the body of work overall at least at this point is still pretty decent given all of the injuries given the squad he's got to work with but i think that that is a that is a a um that is only part of what needs to be a larger, broader level of thinking that says at Everton, we can't compete with the big clubs on conventional terms. We don't have the money. You know, it's funny because we talk about having money now compared to Moyes. Yeah, we have money compared to like before Farhad Mashiri. But when you compare us now to the richest of the rich clubs, and yeah. it's not like like we're pretty much kind of back to where we were at. You know, it's just on we may have more money, but so do they. They have a considerably more money. And so I think that Everton have to embrace the weird. They have to embrace a willingness to say, we have to find advantages in places where people are not looking for them. We have to take risks and say, you know, it might be a little early to put this guy into the first team. It might be a little strange to play this guy in this situation or whatever, but we would rather... Um, we would rather have a chance at spectacularly succeeding as opposed to knowing we're going to fail with the same approach and the same, um, you know, way of, of doing things. Because uh, to me, there is no, there's no downside, you know, beyond relegation, which I just frankly don't subscribe to the idea that we're, we're really a threat of that. I think Everton have a an opportunity, and I don't know how many times I've said this before, but they have an opportunity to get weird with it. They have an opportunity to 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 make some unconventional decisions, play some young players, uh, you know, in spots when there are injuries that have provided that opportunity. Why not do it? Um, there's just no point. Other than if you want to say, well, we're paying them good money, which, hey, that's an argument. There's no point to seeing Delph anymore. There's no point to seeing Davis anymore. Um, if, uh, you know, if we had, if, if um, you know, there's a part of me that thinks there's no point in seeing Michael Keane anymore. I've seen enough of him, frankly, after last week. Like there are, uh, and I've seen enough of Mason Holgate. Like you can say all of those things, but in certain some positions, you don't actually have a viable alternative. And in some positions you do. And so I think that, that Everton has have to kind of embrace a strategy of being a little bold. It may come with risks, but the, the bigger risk to me is just doing the same old things and getting the same old results and perpetuating this mediocrity, uh, you know, on a terminal basis. Well, you, you know what, Rob, you've used it. You've used the term there. I was just going to say there's a freedom to mediocrity, isn't there? That, that, yeah. that's the, that's the leash that is is not around Everton's neck at the moment because we there's we, an opportunity with mediocrity. Yeah, sure. There's there's no there's no expectation. Obviously, there's no unless we go on a horrendous run and this will no doubt get dragged up again in May. But there's no real prospect of us getting dragged into any form of really deathly battles in this Premier League this season. And quite simply, the, the unfortunate truth with regards to both Onyango and Davis to an extent is that footballers of their age are expected to perform way earlier than they ever have been in the past. No no one, I know we look at someone like a Tyler Onyango, again, I reiterate that we know absolutely nothing about how much pedigree this lad is going to have at the top level, but 
We also probably didn't know that about Bukayo Saka and about Mason Greenwood a year ago, who have only very recently turned 20 themselves. I get it. There's a little bit more in terms of age about them and they're a little bit more sheltered in terms of the nature of the club that they're at and, and they can be they can be nursed into the realities of football a little bit slower than someone like Tyler Onyango will will no doubt be nursed in when he puts one bad pass out of play at Molyneux on Monday. But yeah. we, we need to we need to learn these lessons and we need to find out. And if ever there was a football team who looked like it needed to to learn some real lessons about itself, I think we, we most definitely saw that on Saturday. Um, Rob, one one last final Mark, Can I ask you, can I, can I make one? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Mark. I have one last point I wanted to make on that. Yeah. And when it comes to this discussion about what, what does it look like to play, you know, to give an opportunity, like we talked about this with Gordon, like when Richarlison was hurt, Calvert-Lewin was hurt, you had all these injuries everywhere. We said, you might as well play Gordon so that you can learn something about him, like, and, and you can see him develop and see what do Gordon's talents look like within the framework of playing with other first team players, because you don't really at a certain point learn anything about Tyler Onyango or Anthony Gordon playing with other under 23s, right? Like I would like to see if you wanted to make, again, to strengthen this argument that we're both making here, I'd like to see what Tyler Onyango can learn from playing next to Allen. I'd like to see what he can learn when he's in a position to uh, have to, you know, to try to make plays and connect the dots between our defense, you know, with, with good play, you know, with, with players like Richarlison or with Calvert-Lewin eventually. Like, I don't need uh, Tyler on Yango, frankly, g- given where he's elevated to at this point. I don't know that just like we talked about, there's not much more to learn about Tom Davis, uh, you know, playing in the first team for Everton. Conversely, I don't think there's much more to learn about Tyler Onyango and Anthony Gordon playing uh, for the under-23s either. So to me, you either play them with the first team or you send them out on loan where they're going to do so. But right now, there's no window opening until January. Now's the time to just go ahead and take advantage of this opportunity to say, you know, what would it look like to see what what would Tyler Onyango's talent uh, look like playing with better players. And that's what I would like to see happen. I don't know that it will, but uh, it's just, again, it, it may not be about Onyango in particular, but it's about an approach that says um, young players develop better playing with better players. Um, that's part of the reason why at clubs, you know, at, at some of the clubs like Chelsea or at City. Now, again, the reasons for their ability to have these young players excel have to do with the fact that they can throw a young player in and it won't really affect their bottom line because they're surrounded by, you know, the, the most expensive squads in the world, which I grant yes, you. Yes. But I would also make the argument that that the reason why young players, uh, like like why, why does a Phil Foden uh, who is homegrown at City since he was a kid? Why does he become a superstar? Well, part of it is because, of course, he's got talent, right? But I think part of it also is that he has honed that craft and honed that talent playing with other super talented players. Mm-hmm. So to me, um, you know, you could if if you had Phil Foden at Everton and he was the same, you know, player in terms of his actual raw talent, but he just kept playing with the under 23s because of the conventional wisdom of, well, he's young, he's not ready or whatever. Like you're just you're, you're putting a cap on on the outcome there. And so for me, I want to see not every, I'm not saying throw every under 23 into the first team, but I am saying yeah. that when the opportunity presents itself because of injury or what, you know, whatever the freak occurrence may be, or in our case, just 
you know, astounding mediocrity in certain positions in terms of the squad depth, then play these guys and see what happens. Uh, I think that I think that I would I would rather bet on that outcome uh, than than the outcome that we're going to get by doing the same old thing and expecting a different result. You know, Rob, the, the other dark way of looking at the whole, you know, we could go into a whole different podcast about what Everton do with their under 23 setup, but if, if we find out in the next year that Anthony Gordon is absolutely not the footballer that we need him to be, or Tyler Onyango, or Lewis Dobbin, or any one of these names, the, the prospect of giving them opportunities at the top level and finding out those things means that if it, if it is pretty negative and you don't think that the calibre of footballer that you need is there, then go and make a business decision to, to, to move them on. For, for a financial profit, as opposed to letting someone like Matty Pennington lead the 23s out when he's 35. It, it's, <laughs> it's that kind of broken system that we've got, whereby with these players, unfortunately, there comes a point where you have to use them or lose them. And Everton just right. kind of sit in that, in that cloud of just nothing, where we, we kind of just, we expect that one day they'll turn into training we'll put them in the first team and it might just click and work. It, it feels right. as though it takes us a lot longer to learn lessons about our own footballers than, than other teams do. Uh, and, yeah. uh, well, most players in every sport, Mark, uh, who are young, um, <laughs> it is in a very narrow set of circumstances or, or, or instances where a young player just suddenly – uh, you know, is inserted into a lineup and is just a star from the beginning. Yeah. Most of them go through struggle, and that struggle is what makes them into, you know, it's the iron sharpens iron, but really it's just the, you know, like on, on one level you hear that term, but I think that a better way of saying it is just that that um, struggle uh, begets future success, uh, especially for a yeah. young player. They have to understand what works and what doesn't work so that they can understand what the best version of themselves as a footballer looks like. And so, therefore, I, I think at a certain point, you just have to allow for a player to go out there and say, we may have some short-term setback with a result here or there or with the player not playing well here or there. But if they're good enough, they they eventually come good. And I don't yeah. mean eventually like 100 games, 200 games in or whatever, but I do mean that, you know, give a play, give a young player a full – you know, a, a you know full couple of seasons worth of but you know com combined appearances and starts, yeah. and suddenly you start seeing a player who is able to take their talents and raise their game because that's what ultimately being a skilled professional um, is about. That that they have to find a way to utilize their talents to raise their level up to where it needs to be to compete. Um, if you don't allow them to do that, or if you think, well, I'm going to wait till they get really great at the 23s and then start that process all over again in the first team I mean by then you know you've already missed out by then they're they're leaving for Southampton you know by then they are they're saying yeah you know I've, I've had enough of waiting here I want to go somewhere where I'm going to be allowed to make mistakes in order to be able to take steps forward um, this this boogeyman of like the oh well we can't play young players because we you know we're competing for your we're not competing for Europe this Everton side is not competing for Europe and yeah. We are not threatened by relegation. So to me, that means there is a tremendous opportunity that needs to be seized. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see it seized as, as quickly as possible. And by the way, I would also throw in there that, I, you know, 
I could talk about this not only in midfield where we focused on, um, you know, I'd give me more of Branthwaite. I'd rather see Branthwaite struggle a little bit to see his top side as we began to see some of the upside of playing him when we had to play him versus seeing more of Mason Holgate and Michael Keane, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if we had any fullback options, we would be having that discussion, but we don't. Um, you know, we don't really have striking options. But in the areas of the pitch where we do have some of these opportunities, there's going to come a point where the difference between playing them or not playing them is going to be very minimal in terms of actual points, but it's going to be massive in terms of the long-term consequence of not knowing what those players can and cannot do. Absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely no certainty about the next seven days in Tyler Onyango's life, but I think that the one thing we can safely say is whether he turns out for Everton or Everton under 23s, he'll still be playing in front of more people than James Rodriguez was the other night. Um, <laughs> that, that was that was particularly pleasing to watch, Rob, wasn't it? Mark, that that tweet that you put out was, uh, which I retweeted. That was uh, so great, it, and it was the body language was just horrible to watch, wasn't especially it? with like all five people in the stands watching <laughs> one of the lowest levels of professional football in the world. Yeah, it was. Boy, how sad! Sad was that. Um, yeah. Oh, um, Mark, before we go, I want to finish on something because this is going to be the last time I get to do this before Halloween uh, cool. this Sunday. But um, I want to make my kind of scary TV movie watching recommendation. Um, I, Patty, and I started talking about it last week, um, and I want to finish it off. I, I jokingly uh, referred to it at the very beginning, but if you have a chance to see Midnight Mass on Netflix, it's incredible. Um, um, it, it is, <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil anything, but let's just say it's definitely, it's a story that, that does ponder the, the, the deep meaning of life and death, but also is still a very scary monster story uh, at the same time. Uh, and I, I, I highly recommend that. Uh, in terms of movies, I do also want to recommend this random uh, indie horror flick that came out. I want to say this year or last year, but I saw it like on, I saw it on Amazon Prime. Um, gosh, I saw this a uh, few weeks ago, and it's called Superhost. And it's about these two Instagram influencer types who basically have made a living by going to all of these different like home, you know, private home rentals, like we use Airbnb, like Airbnb type of thing or whatever. And what they do is they, they, they use that to like do these videos and all these different things uh, to kind of, you know, make money and peddle their influence or whatever. Well, they end up going to this one, um, you know, uh, to this one house that uh, a woman is, is hosting them at. Uh, I, and, this, and I say woman, like she's a very young woman, probably like in her early twenties or whatever, who seems very enthusiastic about them being there and is super excited about the whole proposition. But then, uh, it turns out that she is a psychotic, uh, killer and, <laughs> and it turns into just an incredible, uh, shit show, but it's also awesome, uh, because it, it is very biting of the whole Instagram, uh, video culture and how fake all of it is. It's really, really good it's called Superhost, and i cannot recommend it enough those are my scare that is the end of my scary movie and, and tv bit for the you know for this year um i hope every one of you has a happy halloween and for those of you who are out trick-or-treating and getting candy please uh eat several pounds of chocolate for me are we gonna get um are we gonna get six weeks of christmas film breakdown in the lead up to to late no no we're just gonna talk about our fate um, we're gonna talk about a different 
uh, diehard moment uh, every week yes. starting next week for the next awesome. two months. One of the <laughs> jog horror film nonsense that everyone's private messages are about, but we're going to get into some some serious stuff. But Rob, obviously, okay. Halloween is basically like triple Christmas for you guys over there. So tell me, you've got massive plans this weekend? Oh God! Well, no, I, I can't say that I do. I am going to, I, I'm going to a college football game this Saturday uh, because of a work a work thing for my that 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 is tied to my wife. But I'm going to see a you know what ought to be a probably not a very good game, but at least it'll be a major college football game between Oklahoma State and Kansas. That'll be interesting. Uh, but it's it's this tradition called homecoming, which is a very American thing here. That you call that high schools and, and college and universities have, which is basically a big excuse to have like a party every year centered around a football game that invites you know old you know former students back to campus to be part of like festivities and in the case of many of them like parades and flowers and uh, music and you know food and merriment and all that kind of crap. But uh, I'm going to be doing that this Saturday and. Uh, but for Sunday, um, you know, I think my wife and I, I'll be watching uh, the Cowboys game uh, on Thanksgiving, on uh, uh, Halloween night and uh, entertaining trick-or-treaters. I've got to go out and actually get good candy. We've had a supply chain issue over here in America, and so I feel like candy is really expensive right now. But uh, we're going to get candy. And uh, that's basically it. Yeah, I, I did pull out a photo from a couple of years ago. I dressed up as Michael Myers for Halloween. Uh, yeah. Not the Austin Powers Michael Myers, but the Michael Myers of Halloween <laughs> fame. Uh, and it's a picture of me uh, and my wife j dressed up as Jamie Lee Curtis's character in that film. And so uh, there's a picture of me with a knife looking like I'm about to stab my wife that I worry is going to be used against me in a court <laughs> of law at some point. But luckily I have a mask on, so there's some plausible deniability there. Maybe we can start homecoming as a thing over here when we get you over in December. That, that 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 to me is the epitome of a man's homecoming. Surely, when you're oh, sitting there on second of January, Rob, watching Everton get absolutely spanked around the park by Leandro Trossard, that that is the <laughs> that is the quintessential meaning of homecoming for me. I'm going to be there when all of Brighton's XG start, starts to turn into G right in front of my eyes, you know, and, and Mick, Mick, Mick Greenall will be giving me the, you know, will be giving me the, the bird and saying, yeah, I told you, I told you, Rob, I told you that, that Brighton knew what they were doing. Uh, yeah, no, I, as we get closer to my trip, so I'm coming at the end of December, um, yeah. You know, we'll talk about I, we'll, we'll actually talk about some of that on Kickabout because I do get a lot of questions from American listeners uh, on this about like what it's like to try to plan a trip out there and and what the experience is like and what you need to know going there. And I say all the time to them, like you know, just ask anyone on Twitter; they they're willing to tell you because there's really no more like friendly city to visit in terms of people telling you what to see and believe it or not, by the way, guys, there's a lot more to do in Liverpool than just go to Beatles museums. So I highly recommend yeah. you, you explore that uh, as much as possible, but we'll talk about some of that. And Mark and I have been talking about, I'm going to throw this out for, for everyone. I know we're now into, uh, you know, into our 95th minute right now, which I know is making Matt Jones really happy, but I think what for the um, about to score their fifth. Here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I I um I think that Mark and I have been talking about doing some uh doing a recording of Kickabout 
somewhere in the city where if you want to sit and have a pint while you watch us uh, shoot the shit while we sit there and have pints, uh, I think that we're, we're looking into something like that. So uh, if you have made it this far into the podcast and this is an idea that excites you, please uh, say so on Twitter so that I can uh, pass that along to some of these skeptical uh, brethren I have at the Blue Room who don't think anything like this can work. But I do think it could work. I think it would be a lot of fun. And uh, look forward to seeing as many of you out as I can when I'm over in December. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, I think you've you've had the the joy of being able to connect with so many so many blues over here on the internet and in, in your previous trips when you've been over. But yeah, we're definitely going to look to to get not only obviously everyone who who contributes to our show, but all of you guys as the listeners as well. So it's going to be a bit of a mega party, I think. And I think I, I can definitely foresee a, a situation now whereby we're in a room that holds a hundred and Rob's got about 400 blues who want to come and see him, but we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But yeah, that's us. Um, I hope we, we don't have to go to, to some of the places Rob on kickabout that we've had to go to this week, but this is, this is part and parcel of, of the life that we lead. Um, yeah. So yeah, thanks very much for, for joining myself and Rob and for Keith for joining us as well. Um, kickabout is of course just one of a number of shows that blue room graces your podcast feeds with this week so we've got sub subs weekly which matt adam and alan have, have recorded this week uh monday show with ben and gavin buckland and david mooney is out as well um, obviously feel free to go back and listen to that absolute barrage of hilarity which was the post match on saturday uh, and obviously <laughs> we've got all of your your build up to Monday night's game at Molyneux, whereby I regret to inform you all we are going to have to sit around and watch and talk about Everton again. But until then, enjoy your weekend and thanks very much for listening. At Baker's, we work with local farms right in our own backyard to bring you food that's fresher than fresh. From homegrown watermelon that makes your mouth water to crisp corn picked right around the corner. Come pick out some yourself. Because shopping for local produce should be as easy as shopping at your local Baker's. Baker's, fresh for everyone. When you're a Boost member, you get free delivery, double fuel points, and lots more. Sign up at bakersplus.com slash boost. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply